Welcome to Passing Judgment, podcasts about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson. We are joined by the show's regular co-host, Joe Armstrong. And there is late breaking news dealing with both politics and the law. And that is the news that President Trump and First Lady Melania Trump have both contracted the coronavirus. We're going to talk about the politics of this a little bit and some of the hypothetical, again, at this point, very hypothetical, legal possibilities, hypothetical possibilities that might occur as a result of somebody who's both a sitting president and a candidate for president contracting this unpredictable and very dangerous virus. So, Joe, welcome. Thank you. Hi, Jessica. Happy to be here as always. And let me just say that it's not just the Trumps. Uh, Hope Hicks, an advisor to the president, as well as Utah Senator Mike Lee, also tested positive. And this is a developing story. A lot of people were on that plane out to the debates earlier this week in Cleveland. And uh, there may be other uh, positive test coming out of this. But for now, we're going to work with what we have. And I would like to take this opportunity to go on record and say that we on Passing Judgment, we wish Mr. and Mrs. Trump, Hope Hicks, and anyone else affected by this unpredictable and dangerous virus a very speedy recovery. And like you said, I want to double down on this. Let's establish right away and stress the fact that everything we discuss today are hypotheticals. The president is not dead, so as far as we know, and these are all in the event of situations. So take it away, Jessica. So we're going to talk about, as I said, kind of two main legal buckets. Now, the first issue, of course, is the politics of this. And I think we should both just emphasize what an incredibly bizarre world we live in, that the president of the United States says, the first lady and I have contracted coronavirus. And the response is that we're not sure if we believe it. Not everybody, but there are serious conversations about whether or not this is a conspiracy or a hoax. And that is just, it just bears mentioning, that is a really strange place to be when we're not sure if we trust the President of the United States as to whether or not he has now contracted a virus that's put us in the middle of a pandemic. Yes, and these are some chickens that are coming home to roost that were set loose by Steve Bannon in an interview not terribly long ago. Uh, He said, I'm going to use a different word than he used, but the Bannon doctrine, such as it is, is, quote, flooding the zone with poop. In other words, making the truth unknowable. I find it interesting that now that the Trumps have contracted coronavirus, that we are in a situation where so many people would doubt that. And I think, you know, a situation at that level of our government is so very crucial for the security of our government, for the security of our streets, that the same thing that the Bannon Doctrine says has created a situation in our society where people would doubt the veracity of a story that important. Exactly. And, you know, in terms of the politics, I mean, my sense is that it just does not play well for President Trump, meaning he would have really no reason to make this up, because the more we use the words coronavirus and President Trump, the more we remember, frankly, I think his gross mishandling, the fact that he's underplayed how dangerous the virus is, that he's touted remedies that don't really work, that he said we're going to have a vaccine when much sooner than any expert says that we'll have it, that he's mocked people for wearing masks, even in the debate on Tuesday night, which feels like 100,000 years ago, mocked people for wearing masks. And I don't think that this is good for him as candidate Trump. I mean, you know, of course, take away the medical issues. Of course, it's not good for anyone to contract coronavirus. 
But in terms of the optics, I think he really wants to be the strong man. He wants to be invincible. And the fact that he's getting this virus at all, I think it goes against the narrative that it's not that contagious. It's not that scary. Um, And we're not talking as much about Judge Amy Coney Barrett, which I think was a big win for him politically. You know, again, we're back to talking about what I really think is more of his political Achilles heel, which is his handling of the pandemic. Yeah. And I would add that if indeed he is lying about this, which I, I feel is highly unlikely, that's my professional opinion as a person who's been studying the news for most of my adult life, it would be a hell of a gamble. It would be a lot for him to risk if that were to come out that he was indeed faking it. So it seems bordering on preposterous. But setting that aside, you said before, Jessica, that Trump, the the rules that apply to this situation, there are two buckets here, Trump being the sitting president and Trump being a candidate for the next term of president. So differentiate those two for us. Right. So let's start with the fact that President Trump is, in fact, the incumbent president. And again, a hypothetical situation, but it's one where we want to educate the listeners because you and I have gotten a lot of questions about this. What happens if President Trump becomes incapacitated? And there's the 25th Amendment to the Constitution, and it provides a pretty simple answer if President Trump says for himself, you know what, I'm unable to perform the official duties of my office. And there is some precedent for this. We've had presidents who, for instance, have gone under anesthesia for routine medical screening procedures. And they then give over power under the Constitution to the vice president of the United States. And everybody understands that the president writes one letter saying, I'm going under anesthesia, and basically I'll see you on the other side, and I have another letter waiting for when I'm able to, uh, once again, discharge the official duties of office. Then there's another route, which we've never used in American history, and this is Section 4 of the 25th Amendment. And this is if President Trump disagrees. This is an involuntary incapacity. Again, we've never used this section of the Constitution It's vague, it's broad, because why on earth would you want clarity in this particular situation? And we can go into more detail, but the basics of it are that the vice president and a majority of the members of Congress have to tell the president pro tem, Chuck Grassley, and the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, the president of the United States is not up to the job, and Vice President Pence should take over. That's the basics of it. There are a couple of wrinkles. Are you ready? I don't see that going well. It seems like that's something that we as Americans have kept in that trunk in the back corner of the attic for the last 250 plus years. It's going to be pretty dusty if we have to pull that out. And I don't, I don't imagine it will go well. No. And imagine who it's really not going to go well for, which is our current president. One can certainly envision a situation where President Trump says no. I'm fine. And so what happens if the president disagrees? At that point, the vice president and a majority of the cabinet have to basically force Congress's hand. They tell the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, they tell the Senate pro tem, Chuck Grassley, this president cannot discharge his duties. And you have to, under the Constitution, convene within 48 hours and decide within 21 days if we're correct. Now, at this point, both chambers have to vote. You need a two-thirds vote of both chambers to declare 
that the president is unable to perform his duties. And if this process sounds messy, it's because it is, and they can keep doing this over and over. The vice president and the majority of the cabinet can keep going back to the Speaker of the House and the Senate pro tem and say he's unable to discharge his duties. The president can keep saying, no, I'm okay. And they can keep forcing this vote over and over again. Uh, This is the stuff of constitutional law professors' nightmares. And again, we're certainly not there, but we do want to educate the voters on what happens in the event that not just this president, but any president is uh, incapacitated. And there's, again, two different routes. One is he voluntarily says, I'm giving over power to the vice president. Another is that it's an involuntary incapacity. And that's the much more complicated route. It strikes me also as the things you would see in political procedural television shows uh, hyping up the drama. I remember, wasn't there a case like that on, uh, what was the show that everyone loves so much? The West Wing? Madam Secretary and the West. Yes, I think both of those political shows. And, you know, it's important for listeners to remember that who's not involved in this decision making? It's doctors, medical experts. So these are decisions that are made by political actors, all of whom have something at stake to decide whether or not the president is able to fulfill his duties. Now, there are reasons why you don't want to involve doctors who are unaccountable to the American public. But it is important to remember, it's not like there's a medical test or a psychiatric test or a psychological test. This is really based on the judgment of the vice president and a majority of the cabinet. And then if it comes to that, uh, both houses, both chambers, Congress and the Senate. And I want to remind everyone, all of these things heretofore are hypothetical. We're not there yet. Hopefully we won't get there. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, candidate Trump, because that's a wholly different conversation with a different set of rules. Am I correct? Absolutely. This is a totally different, as I say, probably way too often in class, this is a totally different bucket. So, of course, at this point, President Trump is not in the beginning or middle of his term. And it's not even that the election is soon, it's that the election is now. About 2 million people, as of the time that we're recording this podcast, have already voted. And the ballots are already being printed. We're talking to you from California, where people will be able to vote early within a matter of hours. And so when you think about issues of what's going to happen to a candidate for president, you think of it like temporal snapshots. So first, there's the kind of after the nomination, but before the ballots are printed moment. We're past that. We're now in the messiest moment, which is the post-nomination, post-ballots being printed, but pre-electoral college. And this is, as I said, you know, it's just the squishiest, messiest time to be talking about this. But the short version is that what we think would happen is that the national parties, if it came to this, again, hypothetical, if it came to this, we think the national parties would really pick a new presidential nominee. And then the electors, of course, we don't directly vote for the president in this country. We vote for a slate of electors who then vote for the president and vice president, that the electors would go along with whoever the national party chooses. Are you ready for the wrinkles or do you want a quick, quick breather? 
Oh, man. I think I might need a beer. Maybe some scotch, too, after this. But, uh, yeah, go on. Go on. So, uh, first of all, listeners, thanks for hanging in there. This is, let's emphasize again, this is a really weird situation. I have taught election law, and this is not even something you would typically spend much time on at all. So, in a situation where, hypothetically, the President of the United States passes away or is incapacitated, then uh, as candidate, what happens is the national party would implement a procedure to choose the new nominee. Now, since people are already voting, since the ballots are already printed, what would happen is that people would still go to the polls, they'd vote on November 3rd. Now, it depends on when you might need to nominate a new nominee, but people would go to the polls, and if there is nobody who's been named, they would vote for either the Trump-Pence ticket or the Biden-Harris ticket. And then before the Electoral College meets, the RNC would say, here's our new slate. This is now the new nominee to be president. This is now the new nominee to be vice president. And the understanding would be that if that state voted for Trump-Pence, then the electors for that state would vote for the new Republican nominee and uh, for president and vice president. One more wrinkle, which is, one, there's some issues dealing with whether or not electors have to be faithful to the vote of the state they represent, meaning do they have to vote according to the popular vote of the state that they represent? And two, really nightmare scenario, a wrinkle on a wrinkle on a crease, which is, What if Republican state legislatures tried to appoint electors to vote for the new Republican ticket, even if the voters of that state had voted for Biden? I don't think that would happen. That would be true election chaos. But for now, what people should know is, again, they would go to the polls. You would still see either the Trump-Pence slate or the Biden-Harris slate. You would pick one. And then the electors would meet very likely after the RNC had named their new nominee. And because the electors tend to be party loyalists, they would then vote for whoever the RNC had chosen. And is that the concept of binding electors? Is that uh, what we're talking about there? Yes, that's part of what we were talking about there, these idea of loyalty laws by electors. But I think for the listeners, what's important to remember is that Members of the Electoral College are typically picked because they are party loyalists. There aren't a lot of surprises. And even in this topsy-turvy, upside-down world, I think that the electors would still vote according to what the party suggests. Conscience. Do people have conscience in our government? Me. I hope we don't have to find out. And it's something I spend a lot of time thinking about. And Jessica, my dear friend, The more I learn about the gray areas of our government, the more I realize why it is that you do not sleep at night or perhaps in the daytime either. So uh, some nice warm milk and a hot water bottle for you. And uh, maybe we'll try to get some sleep tonight, right? Joe, how long have we been friends? You must know that Derry and I are not any two things that go together. But We live in California. There's almond milk. You've got soy milk. There's all manner of milks you could choose from. I I will say, having done this podcast for a little over three months now, 
I'm very grateful that I can talk about these issues with you. You're so smart. You're so thoughtful. The show and the listeners are really lucky to have you, not just as the producer, but as now the regular co-host of the show. For people who want to find out more about Joe, he's on all social media platforms at In-Depth day. Joe is a really talented musician. We probably don't say this enough, but you did the intro and outro music for the podcast. Among many other things, you have an album that's about to come out. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the show on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod, the show on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. And listeners, again, this is hypothetical. We certainly wish anyone who's contracted the virus good health. We're doing this episode because we want to educate people on the constitutional and legal possibilities, not just for this present, but frankly, these issues could come up again. And listeners, we know there's already a lot of chaos surrounding the election. Whenever there tends to be a lot of uncertainty, people sometimes will just sit out the election and feel like, you know what, there's just too much going on. This is too crazy. We really would urge people take part in your democracy. Please do either show up at the polls, fill in that mail-in ballot, go to an early polling center, but please do have a say in the type of government that you want to have going forward. So we thank everybody very much for listening. Please always give us feedback and we will see you next time.